FIA welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here's your host, Anne Chipetta. Welcome, everybody, to The Art Parlor with Friends in Art. I'm Annie Chipetta. Art Parlor is the place that we talk and discuss things about disability and blindness and how it relates to us and our creativity. Tonight, we have a special guest, uh, Maya Scott. Hello. Hello. I'm going to try to uh, read your bio a little bit, and hopefully I get through all of it, and then we can talk. How's that sound? Fantabulous. All right. Maya Scott teaches accessible and performing arts classes through the City College of San Francisco. She works as an accessibility analyst for Fable, and she explores all manner of gig jobs, including showing work as a resident artist at the Palo Alto Arts Center. She consults on accessibility with the arts there. She leads labyrinth training. I'm sorry. I'm like really unfocused tonight. I don't know why. Let's just go to the questions. (laughs) Perfect. So Maya Scott. I have you on here tonight because of one major thing, and that was your work with Labyrinth. We met a long time ago at ACB conference, and I was really impressed with your work with the visual arts as a creative artist who's visually impaired. And I think we need to hear your story and what you do and everything related to creativity and the visual arts and how you insert uh, your appreciation for that as a visually impaired person. So why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and some of your training, maybe your education and whatever comes to mind. And we'll just ask some questions and have a good evening together. Beautiful. Thank you for having me on board today. It's uh, totally a treat to geek out on all things arts and access with you guys tonight. Um, I We'll kind of start from the beginning and say that I had a a mom and a dad who were kind of a lover and a fighter and really started out just advocating for me to be my, you know, whole self and have everything I need. And I remember um, early on, they, you know, took me to dance classes. My mom gave me big paper. She says she's not an artist, but she's also a very creative and artistic person. And um, she chose to give me big paper that allowed me to create my own worlds and not coloring books where I was obligated um, or felt like I was obligated to stay in the lines. And I think that really set the course for my life of, you know, whether it's culturally or peer pressure wise, like, you know, choosing whether or not to stay inside the lines or be outside the lines, so to speak. I've always loved dance and movement as well as um, visual art and writing. And i I'm an interdisciplinary artist, and I believe that a lot of our arts don't fit in nice little boxes. For instance, I feel like dance is a visual art. You're basically creating sculpture and pictures with people, with bodies. You know, same with writing, you know, the scenes that you can make with words, right? So um, even though I write and do movement stuff and visual art, I still kind of feel like a visual artist because it's all very visual, whether it's using your sight or your you know, vision, so to speak. So I did an MFA. Well, I did my um, BA. Okay. Backing up. 
Okay. I did my MA <laughs> in dance. I did okay. a BA in therapeutic recreation. And after putzing around and humming and hawing and working as a recreation therapist and coordinating a head injury program and teaching accessible theater and movement for a nonprofit, I finally got my MFA in creative inquiry and interdisciplinary arts from the California Institute of Integral Studies, where I feel like, I finally feel like I grew up and really came into myself. It was an amazing program. Oh, somewhere in there also, I started doing body work, uh, massage and whatnot, which has stopped since the pandemic, which to me was like, I finally got a job being paid to dance, even though I'm short and chunky and uh, was joyous. Um, and also have been teaching accessible visual and performing arts uh, for City College of San Francisco through their Disabled Students Programs and Services, primarily to students um, and agents at agencies for students who can't necessarily make it to your standard college classes. And along the way, I've also trained as a labyrinth facilitator. I love designing and making and drawing labyrinths and using them in kind of as a creative constraint in my artwork. So I really love pilgrimage and seeking and exploration and elements and spirit. And I can go all woo-woo on you with that, but I feel like it makes for a really neat um, package to work within. Again, playing with whether or not you want to stay in the lines or not. So I will come full circle on that. I think it's uh, wonderful that you talk about not staying within the lines, whether you couch it as, you know, thinking or acting or exploring outside the box or outside the lines. I think it's essential for artists to do that. That's how we grow and that's how we uh, we create and and that's how, you know, we explore ourselves in the context of so many things in life. You said about uh, your labyrinth experience, did that start later in life? Did, did it start like when you were a kid? Did you like mazes? Did you, did you do cat's cradles? I don't know. Like how did, mm. how did all of that, uh, Oh, just how that those patterns, how did they play out in your life when you were younger and how'd you bring them over into your adult life? Oh, what a fun question. Um, I remember playing Cat's Cradle with friends and enjoying it. I never associated that with labyrinths, though. That's really fun. And that's a question that I, I really need to ponder to see if there's any <laughs> kind of theme and variation in my life, aside from the kind of inherent symbolism that I can find about my life in the kind of the structure of the labyrinth in general. It came later, actually, uh, maybe about, oh my goodness, I was on my first guide dog at the time. I'm on number four. So maybe like 22 years ago or so, like right. a lifetime ago, um, it, <laughs> it happened. And it actually was a workshop. Someone had had um, a labyrinth facilitator bring a canvas labyrinth. For those who don't know what a labyrinth is, it's often used these days as a, a meditation tool for, it's kind of a moving meditation. And for the most part, many of them haven't been the most accessible as far as the actual walkable ones, which we can talk about at some point if you have questions about that. But it's basically you're taking one path in, you take the same path out. There's no dead ends. There's no trick turns. It's kind of there to inspire you to narrow your focus just sort of like a seated meditation, only you're in motion. So that's, that makes me really happy. So that's kind of the gist of a labyrinth. You can find them in parks and schools and there's canvas ones, there are churches at retreat centers. Uh, people have them in their backyards. 
There's even a accessible one that was specifically built for people who are blind and disabled out here in Santa Rosa at the Earl Baum Center for the Blind. Uh, that's oh, yeah. pretty epic. It's so fun. It's always so <laughs> cool to see people with canes and guide dogs just like walking it. It's beautiful. So I walked my first one at this workshop. The lights were low. I have um, some functional vision, or I like to say I have some functional sight, but my vision is quite clear uh, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so uh, we were walking this path and I found myself jumping on and off to let other people go by. And I kept on, you're not supposed to get lost in a labyrinth. They told us that. So I kept on getting spit out the entrance and it really made me cranky. And I would stomp back in and be like, dang it. Why do I always take longer to do everything? And everyone else is just going through and coming out. You're not supposed to get lost. And I get lost. This is just like real life. You know, had this whole thing. (laughs) And then finally later on, I was like, and the aha can kind of come, you know, it's not always like you know, oh, one of those moments, you know, <laughs> the labyrinth. So it was later on, I was like, wait a minute, I was the lucky one. I got to spend more time walking around, swirling with all these other people in space on this beautiful piece of art. I mean, how much, how often do you get to touch a piece of art, let alone step on it? So I was the lucky one. And <laughs> it really made me learn about how the journey is the reward. And that, you know, to, to just, uh, take some time to really enjoy the anticipation of getting to the center of whatever it is that I'm doing. And I got to the center. It was nice. You know, everyone was, I was in the middle and I was still and people were around me, but then I wanted to go back out and start moving with people again and and going. So um, that kind of caught my attention and realized there's something I could really learn about, you know, myself about walking in circles. And then a bit later I was realizing, you know, I got lost because I was jumping out of the way for everybody. And sometimes other people can go around me. You know, I don't have to, I'm not yes. in the way all the time. <laughs> so as a visually impaired person, I always feel like I'm a little slower. I'm a little thicker. I'm a little different and I'm not quite with everyone else. And I should be. And it's like, got to cross out that should. So um, that's where that so, all started. <laughs> so, yeah. So what was it like for you not to move out of the way and let people go around you for a change? I realized that there's this beautiful choreography and if I really am present and listen to my, my body and who's around me that oftentimes it's a mutual thing. You know, we we work together. I find it less so nowadays with cell phones. I can't tell you how many times people play chicken with me and they're texting what they had for lunch and they stop, you know, a dog stops dead. They stop dead. And we're looking at each other like, what are you doing there? You know? Yeah, we have that. <laughs> but it, the sidewalk not... checks, yes. Yes, the sidewalk checks, yes. So it's it's um that whole being present though, because you know if we're really present with each other, um, we notice each other. We kind of just move around each other without having to make decisions. It just sort of inherently happens. It's this soft choreography that's not happening now because of our our devices. Very so interesting point that you make there. <laughs> With our cell phones in our faces or um, mm-hmm. our earbuds in and, you know, we're we're sliding off into listening and not being present to where our feet are going. Oh. Hey, Maya. Yes. I'm curious about something. And maybe you've said this and I just didn't get it. Obviously, elaborates are cool things and you can like, see how they, how they can encourage meditation. How are they art? I mean, you've talked about sort of dancing around and you've talked about sort of art, you know, the sort of the, the pacing and so on and so forth. What do you think makes labyrinths artistic, if you will? Oh, that's a fun question. And that's also an opinion of mine. Most of the ones that I have experienced or have seen pictures of were 
created with intention. I feel like a lot of art is created with intention. Sometimes the intention is to just create with total abandon. But in a lot of cases with labyrinths, there's um, a lot of thought that goes into the dimensions and how many turns and the symbolism of, in the case of the Chartres labyrinth, the number of little lunations, a little um, uh, scoopy parts that go around the outside, um, which is like four lunar months and the meaning of the petals inside or how many circuits. Um, so uh, like the one we walked actually, you know, was painted by hand. They're not something that are generally made in, in factories. There's, you know, stone workers and masons and painters and measures. So like all the measuring, some people could say that's not a, that's not a art. It's a craft. In any case, uh, whatever the opinion is, it's something that's intentionally made. And I almost feel like, to me, just as a dance lover, I feel like it's a quiet choreographer of sorts as well. So, you know, someone's planning your route through space. So, Maya, this is Annie. Talk about how you got into the Labyrinth project with the American Printing House. Okay. So, yes, uh, American Printing House for the Blind um, guy, what is it? It was the June of 2020, um, right as the pandemic kind of got going launched uh, Finger Walks, which is a collection of 16 tactile finger labyrinths that are from a bunch of different, you know, all different cultures from different time periods with different complexities, different makers, different shapes. And I, a couple of years before that, submitted a proposal to them and just realizing that they're isn't a lot of accessible materials about labyrinths that are able to reach the blind community and not even audiobooks really. And it's very pictorial and um, text and so forth. I mean, you can watch the movie called the labyrinth that has nothing to do with it. And there's a Kate Moss book called labyrinth that kind of barely has something to do with it, but you know, it's it's pushing it. So um, my inner recreation therapist, um, which was dormant for a long time, got to come out and play and fill out a big form about what benefits walking a labyrinth would have for people of varying ages and how it could fit into school core curriculum and blah, blah, blah. And not only to my surprise, but to the project director who got assigned it surprised, um, it got selected to pursue and then to produce. And he was surprised because it wasn't something that had microchips in it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> well, it, it didn't have it, a screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a meditative art that goes yeah. back a long, long time. And, you know, like you said, it, it's a craft, but it's also a purposeful piece of, of art. So I could see people going, wow, this is this is interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting study in spatial awareness. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of fascinating. I also have a tactile walkable labyrinth that doesn't get to come out to play very much these days, of course, that has webbing with a rope in it. So you can oh, yeah, feel it with yeah. your feet. And mm-hmm. it's really fun to watch, especially sighted people, try to let their feet go and their heads get in the way. So they're going around a corner and their feet are going left because that's the way the rope is telling them to go. And their minds are going right because that's what where their head's telling them to go. So their head's turning one way and their feet are turning the other way. 
and you have all these pretzels stuck in the corners because they're trying trying to go two different directions. Um, So uh, yeah, so it's, it's kind of fun. And I feel like the art also comes from like just using this. Oh, I have it on my, I'm going to tangent. Um, some labyrinths have um, seed patterns that you can start with. Some of like the um, the less intricate ones, the ones that don't have the twists and turns, like uh, the, the sharp turns. You can draw a series of plus sign, a, a plus sign with a series of L's and dots and make a labyrinth like you know at the beach or out of rocks or in the sand or oh I see oh like uh spontaneous yes yeah interesting so there's a lot of us out there nowadays that are finding that the act of creating a labyrinth either using Zentangle or very purposeful careful drawing or using words or mosaics or sea glass or right cotton balls you can make a labyrinth out of anything and that process is almost as meditative as actually walking it so it's kind of fun yeah i would think i would think so you know it reminds me of when i was in what a little kid and you know how they always wanted you to make things out of um popsicle sticks Right. Mm-hmm. And popsicle sticks are very linear, linear objects. You can't yes. make a curve or anything. You have to kind right. of be constrained to what the popsicle stick needs you to do to make something. And um, I was always fascinated with trying to do geometric shapes with them and not so much just, you know, a box or, you know, a bird. Now, you know, whatever I, yeah. I wanted to do, uh, you know, things that were. Um, or more complex than that within the constraints of the popsicle stick. And uh, did you ever break them? <laughs> actually, we weren't um, we weren't allowed to cut them because you had to use like an exacto knife, and they were oh. afraid that you would like you know hurt yourself. And you yeah. can't really cut them with scissors because it's nope. they're too hard. So no, we just used the uh, the regular old popsicle sticks. But I would make geometric shapes, and um, I wouldn't make like you know the things they wanted, and they would get mad at me, and I'd be Oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) this is what I want to make. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I know. But it it just it reminds me of that. It reminds me of some of the mundane things we thought we did in arts and crafts as kids that that really helped develop part of our brain uh, and spatial awareness. And I I just uh, I think, well, you know, how wonderful it would be if, you know, some of that was part of, you know, rehabilitation for people who, you know, sudden vision loss and stuff or things like that. I I sometimes think that, you know, we do need to think outside the box, you know, when we're helping people recover from vision loss. I love that uh, you said that. So. I got to write the guidebook, you know, for the thing for finger walks. And they wanted all this information about spatial awareness and describing it from a spatial awareness and mobility point of view. Yeah. And I learned a lot, you know, just about myself while I was doing that. Let's 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 switch over to the dance and the more the performing at the Palo Alto Art Center. How did you get involved with that? What's your history? You know, who are some of your co-performers and uh, oh, that's what inspires actually, you there? That was actually also a labyrinth thing. The <laughs> per- performance part of it was uh, part of the community day they had. And interestingly enough, I revisited a piece from a thesis project, which actually dealt with being stuck in a box. So it was really fun to be able to bring that there. Otherwise, I was showing, I was one of 20 artists showing work in their gallery space. And 
It came about because there's this amazing curator, Fran Osborne, who is an incredible ally and very proactive and thoughtful curator who reached out to me and said, you know, it's your turn. Um, let's, you know, do you want to be a part of this? And, you know, we'll um, have you kind of as a sort of a resident artist, um, you know, one of the cornerstone star artists for this show. And so I got to create a full-size walkable labyrinth in the gallery. Unfortunately, all my efforts to make it tactile gave the gallery crew the heebie-jeebies because they were afraid people would not pick up their feet and trip on it. And so it ended up being completely not tactile. It was made out of like 600 stamped images of my eye. And then it had like four other, five other little pieces in a creative space that people were allowed to touch. So that was really special um, to oh. allow people get to have a place where people could touch the art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were kind That's... of snarky. There was one that was a peace sign made of like really colorful fractal images and a bunch of snaps. And it was called for greater peace of mind, make less snap decisions. So, um, <laughs> there was one that was made of a bunch of eyes that I took pictures of people in the community's eyes and it was a background for a labyrinth that was an eye shape made out of eyeballs um, like those googly eyes and oh. it was called use more eye statements um, <laughs> oh, yeah. how so, long did that run uh, how long it was did they three months for that's not bad yeah it was a nice yeah. run Beautifully. Um, I mean, Palo Alto Art Center, I heard other artists, who, you know, with disabilities who were in the show who was definitely not their first rodeo. And they said it was one of the most respectfully done shows that they've been a part of when it comes to art and disability culture. And actually, the show is called that The Art of Disability Culture. And if you're interested in seeing it, I think the website is still up with all the audio descriptions from the artist's work. If you Google Palo Alto Art Center, Art of Disability Culture, it'll come up along with some uh, YouTube walkthroughs of the show. Oh, so it's still alive. Art <laughs> Did you say art and disability culture or the, art of disability culture? The art of disability culture. Ah, thank you. Okay, that's that's helpful. And there were six of us who were blind and visually impaired in the show of the 20. So we were well represented. Yeah. What did the other artists do? Did they do anything similar to what you did? Did they do different things? Did I feel like mine, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm about to say mine was like the least related to disability culture, but I take that back because I feel like the eye one was very representative of, you know, my eyes and what they do and the labyrinth itself, you know, for everybody, anybody, it's kind of a gap bridger for those moments when you feel like you're just going to get to your goal and then you have to wind yourself all the way around it until you can actually get there. So, which, you know, I think of as, oh, you know, my visually impaired thing, but everyone has that. So we had everything from a lot of kind of social justice statements. There's one artist, Rachel yeah. Unger, who did this beautiful painting on uh, recycled jeans of her sitting on the floor on the bus, representing her having hidden disabilities and people not moving for her. Mm. And there was a, a bunch of 504, well, not a bunch of, but like some 504 protest photos from the federal building and activist photos from Anthony Tussler, uh, a bunch of self-portraits. Um, trying to think of who else. 
this amazing set of pieces. It's my favorite by Catherine Lichie Chong, who's another blind artist who has these beautiful white blindness series with all these tactile representations of uh, figures of people who have um, influenced her. And yeah, so it's a lot of, a lot of amazing stuff. So let me uh, change gears a little bit here. I know in the past, Friends in Art, you know, we've advocated on behalf of people, for instance, that, you know, you know, audiences that wanted to have audio description or described theater and things like that. And one of the things that that I find that we need more of, especially in, in the arts themselves, is a more tactile connection to things or more description of you know, paintings or visual arts so that, you know, we can stroll along with everybody else and appreciate yes. what's there. So, so give me, give me some examples of where you found something like that accurate for, you know, like where, where it's been done well and, and maybe, you know, why it's done well. Like, was it the docent that was good? I know in the, um, some of the museums here in New York, you could press a little button and there's a recorded version of, you know, you know, of what it looks like and things like that, little history. And and the Ellis Island Museum is like that. Um, a lot of their uh, displays have audible content. So you can, uh, you know, pick up the little headphone and listen. Sweet. Yeah, but it's not enough. So what do you have to say about that, about how, how, how we can, can, you know, move forward and maybe make more of that happen for us? Wow. Um, that's such a fun thing. There's so many things like bouncing through my head right now as you talk <laughs> about that. I'm also going to just throw back one more brag for the Palo Alto Art Center, who did an incredible job to me with audio descriptions. They were you know, saying, oh, well, it's so expensive to do audio description. And I don't know who else, but I, I remember saying like, you know, wow, like, can't we just do it ourselves? Like, can I just read my own? Can I just like mm-hmm. post a QR code? Right. Could we do that? So it turned out that we had, and they're doing it for this next show as well. So it wasn't just the disability related show. They they got a grant to move it forward and do it for the next shows through the rest of the year. Excellent. So the artists uh, read and wrote their own descriptions. And if the artist didn't feel comfortable writing it or speaking it, you know, someone else did it. So in many cases, it was a really cool chance to hear the artist's voices and yes. the artist's perceptions. I was also introduced to ekphrastic poetry, which I didn't know it was a thing until I learned it was a thing and that I've I've been doing it for many years with my <laughs> students. <laughs> we look at a piece of art and write about it as a, as a group. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I feel like there's this yes and that can happen especially with artists who are still present. I, uh, I'm i seeing people like Fran and Karen um, Kinzel, who's the director of the Palo Alto Art Museum, who's, you know, and also uh, Deirdre Visser from CIS. You know, they're doing curatorial classes now and they're inviting in discussions around accessibility and what it is to be a visually impaired person experiencing the museum setting or the gallery setting or the performance setting. Yes. And, how you know it's a dream come true for me because for years I'm like, you know, we need to get this into the maker's mindset before they start the making so that it becomes part of the foundation of what the gallery scene or the theater scene or that um, right the universal design concept where yes what it looks yeah, like it's part <laughs> you know? of it's part of the foundation. 
Yeah. So we're not ruining something they've already visioned. You know, it's already part of that sensibility they already have, right? Yeah, I get. I get sometimes. I get. I get in it. You know, I. I feel like the attitude is, well, we have to do it too. Like, is isn't what we? You know, isn't this beautiful? And now we have to add this. Like, yeah. You know, and I. I don't. I, that attitude is changing little by little, and it's wonderful. But it's still there uh, yeah. sometimes, and. That's because uh, we have to train the new generation to yeah. start start where we are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Maya? So. Yes. We went on this wonderful labyrinthian uh, thing, but I, we, um, Annie originally asked you about your dance experience. Oh. And um, we, I don't think we quite, we, we're circling in that direction maybe, but I'm sort of, <laughs> and, and while we're good at pun, it. Good pun, good pun. Uh, I, I'm interested in your 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 teaching writing or, or how, how connecting writing with teaching and art and stuff. That, that really interests me as well. So continue circling your labyrinth and talk about this too. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I'm, how do I put this? Um, gosh, when I was in high school, I was really learning that my body was not loved by people who wanted dancers, <laughs> I'm, you know, short and chunky and growing chunkier. And now I'm getting older and I'll probably get shorter. Anyway, um, that said, um, <laughs> um, I still loved dance and I, you know, realized at some point from a couple of experiences that it was important to pursue that, even though the school didn't want me for dance education because I didn't look like a dancer. I mm. ended up in therapeutic recreation. Um, so I was still able to teach it and adapt it. But as an artist myself, it's really fascinating. There's like this whole dialogue of sensibilities that have shifted and played over the years. I was doing a lot of costume work, a lot of getting inside of things. I have this piece where I have a block, like a big cube that I put on top of my um, my head. So it covers most of my face and I put objects on it to create faces and then I could turn it and create a new face and then embody what that each of those faces looks like. Um, Anyway, I have that and all these things that kind of distort my shape. And it's really funny. There was this one museum person who was like, oh, yeah, why is this like really incredible uh, uh, cutting edge person creating choreography for blind people? I was like, really? What do you, why do you say that? She goes, well, you always cover your face. You don't have to see what you're, you know, where you're going. <laughs> and I was like, at the same time, I had a coworker saying, why do you always hide inside costumes? And so it, it got me thinking and like, you know, why, why do I always hide? And then I also find that whenever I do work, I don't know if you guys encounter this as artists as well. Sometimes it's blindness. Sometimes it's fatness. Sometimes it's shortness. Sometimes it's womanness. But I feel like a lot of times people see my work dance wise, especially, and they see it as an act of social justice that I'm trying to make a statement to change the world through, you know, fierce advocacy of some for- form by daring to exist on stage or to exist in space and in motion. And it got frustrating. It's like, you know, maybe I just want to do something about bloody triangles, you know? <laughs> so, but you think it has something to related to like, people think that you're trying to rail against body image and justice and those kinds of things. Is that what you're talking about? 
that yes body image stuff or mm-hmm. i become inspiration porn like wow yeah yeah, blind yeah and she's yeah, not falling yeah. off the stage yet oh my god <laughs> this is amazing yeah. yeah we all said yes so because i think we all understand the inspiration. yes but you know then again i also have to honor that as artists when we do put something out in the world it is a gift and I need to not attach the strings and let, let it be what people need to see at the moment. If they need to see a fat body moving through space and wonder about that, great. If they need to realize at the moment that, wow, blind people aren't all totally, you know, totally blind. And um, yes, they can find their way out of a paper bag. Great. If they see a thing about cubes and triangles, great. So it's it's what they need to be at the, the time. So, so you accept the subjectivity of your performance in relation to the person that's viewing your performance. Yeah. You know, I have my inspirations for making what I am. Sometimes it is about body image and sometimes it's not, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think when it gets out there, I need to let go of it and let it be what people need it to be. Well said. What interests, what interests me about this Maya is the the way I hear you describe this stuff there. uh, And I say this with deep respect. It's it, there is an advocacy component to it. That doesn't mean to say everything is advocacy, right? But, you know, the, the way you talk about how you have worked with people to make things more accessible and all those things, for me, at least, for the way you describe it, it sort of comes through in your art as well somehow. Does that make any sense what I'm saying to you? That's just my take on it. And maybe, Very well put. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's inherent in who I am and what I do. Um, right. I remember, you know, when I was at CIS, I was getting rather cranky with my classmates about... So like, oh, I want to see something about your blindness. You know, I want to see how you see. And I was like, I just want to make something about triangles. You know, anyway, I'm using that as an example. <laughs> but, um, no, no, but, but, it, but it's a real issue. That is it. That yeah, is. it is. Yes. That. I, I, I fully understand that. And yeah. my blindness, my body, my sense of access and advocacy, my partnership with my dog, my, you know, kind of. Um, cultural heritage, which is rather mixed. I mean, all these things, my the way I grew up, these are all sensibilities that affect my art, whether I'm bringing it to the forefront or not, it's there. Yeah. yeah. Your art is your advocacy and your advocacy is your art. But not always. That's the interesting thing. You know, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, sometimes you get a triangle is a triangle, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what I find interesting about this conversation, among other things. It's so, like Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, she's like, leave my flowers alone. Yes. <laughs> I know it's just a flower. <laughs> it's just a flower. Yeah. yeah. So, so Maya, I, I'm really curious about this dance thing. I mean, you sort of, so did you actually dance? I mean, we danced in performances. How, how does dance fit into your life? I, gosh, since the pandemic, I haven't been doing so much, but um, except for Palo Alto Art Center, um, I used to perform in like processional stuff with like Sun and Moon Ensemble, which does a lot of big mask and puppetry kind of stuff. Um, Mm. There's San Francisco used to have a fabulous kind of salon scene that, you know, you can bring works in progress, you know, every, you know, second Thursday of the month and uh, share your work um, among peers. And I've also co-organized this, a very special arts festival. I've organized performances and performed some of my pieces in access days at our um, fine arts museum. So, you know, really small venue stuff, really enjoyed working a little bit with, and I want to get back with them. There's this uh, fabulous integrated interdisciplinary performance group out of Cal State East Bay called Dandelion Dance that I've been playing with on and off during the pandemic on Zoom. 
that's been making me very happy. So, so yeah. how do you do the dance stuff on Zoom? You just stand in front of the camera and you all do something? I don't know. Well, that's always a big challenge for me. Luckily, a lot of their stuff is kind of subjective. And if we are, you know, he's, he's because it is um, interdisciplinary, we have different bodies and different ways and abilities of, of doing a thing. So, okay. um, you know, sometimes it's a matter of, okay, I'm just going to fake it and make it whatever. Because, you know, I can't do a pirouette with my nose stuck to the screen. It just does not work without damaging some major (laughs) yeah that would yeah that's just not (laughs) gotcha i also teach some movement and whatnot through my you know uh, work and try to structure things i have everyone who's from people who are totally nonverbal and literally need hand over hand to raise their arms up to people who are you know trying to break dance in their living room so it's really varied oh so, my goodness um, it's <laughs> it's important to try to you know create a warm up structure that every body can do and mm. i have to get my head out of out of you know my ego out of the dance when i'm a student because i can't see the screen when i'm doing zoom and I could sit there and grump about it and wish I could see it and and sit still, or I could just dance with them and hope it's, you know, you know, just let it be what it is. <laughs> yeah. I always love let ballet. Let it go. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Just let it I go. I do love ballet though, because you can do it with your eyes closed and you know that fifth position is going to be fifth position. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. There's something to be said for the discipline part of a lot of art, especially expressive mm-hmm. arts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Maya, can you talk about sort of how you got to where you, I'm so curious about your education, you know, you're, you know, you have this, all this talent and yet you are legally blind. It's sort of an unusual thing for a blind person to do, I think. Can you talk about sort of how your education, how you sort of got to where you, how did you learn ballet, for example, the, the, you know, how did you get to where you are sort of education wise, you know, sort of talk about that. Oh, let's see. Well, first and foremost, I um, don't know that I'm, well, my MFA instructor to my chagrin claimed that I'm a process artist rather than like a product or fine artist. And as much as I would like to be that one that has all the pretty stuff in the nice galleries or on the big stage, it's not me. I'm a small venue, kind of interactive, spontaneous, quirky person. So I might have more heart than talent. Um <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I doubt that. I think, I think, uh, yeah, I, being in the community at the level you want to be, I think it's, mm-hmm. I think it's great. And, you know, I kind of like yeah. it here because there's not as much responsibility as being a big timer. <sighs> but anyway, so I grew, my parents put me into dance classes when I was four, when, um, you know, I was dancing around and I actually would love one of my things that I would love to do someday on my bucket list is do a doctorate. And I think it'd be a really interesting thesis project to find out. Um, Cause I feel, I really feel like taking ballet class and dance class helped me with my own spatial awareness as a blind person. Oh, absolutely. Visually oh, yes. person, and sure. my confidence as did sitting there in an art class with a bunch of sighted people learning how to draw perspective, um, ah. learning how to draw, like everyone else is looking in 3d and learning how to draw 2D. And I'm learning why things look the way they do with them and understanding my flat world with them. Mm. Is Annie, I I, I totally relate to that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. 
Cause I, I went from, uh, you know, I, when I, my vision loss, you know, closed that 3d world to me in slow pieces. And, mm. you know, it was just, it was, you know, at the time it was happening, it was horrible, but now I think about it and I say, you know, I, you know, in my mind, I never lost that ability because I had, I had it to begin with, you know? So even though I'm visually impaired now, it's kind of like, you know, like, like a hidden sensory piece that I often draw upon, uh, you know, when I do need it, it's there because I, at one time I did have it. It's just weird how the mind works in, in those spatial concepts. It's pretty wild. That's why I like to call vision. There's like vision with a small V, which is like what your eyeballs see. And then there's vision with your capital V. Yes. What you have access to in your mind and your heart. (laughs) So yes. Yeah. All right. So keep going. So you, you (laughs) class and, um, so, and how, how are your sort of instructors, professors towards you? I mean, you know, how well did they treat you? Learn? Oh, that's fun. Varying degrees. Oh gosh. I remember this high school teacher who would stay after class with me and point out all the little spots for me that I missed. So I can go in there with paint. He didn't say, oh, honey, that's really nice as it is. Don't worry about it. You got, you know, you're fine. Nor did he take the brush himself and do it. Like he actually showed me where they were and worked through it with me um, and took extra time to do that. So, you know, to me, that was so empowering. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't a special ed teacher. He was just your average high school art teacher, but definitely not just your average. If you get my gift, Mm -hmm. Mr. Cooper was phenomenal. And then I had you know, can go into college. And I remember going into my first dance class and one of my instructors was like, oh, you know, it might be worth it to go over to the resource center. You know, you can get someone to help you with learning the steps and stuff. And at that point I'd had a lot of, you know, dance experience through high school. And, you know, by the end of my time there, I was, you know, choreographing for their, their show. And with her never was, you know, she said that one time, but I feel like some people are just determined to continue doubting. And I don't know if you guys relate to this. Like my figurative thing is I have to show that I can do three flips in order for people to trust that I can do one. Mm -hmm. Do you relate? Yes. Yes. Um, So I barely felt that with her and I felt very supported. Uh, You know, I, I guess I kind of lucked out and ended up with, you know, I didn't stay with people that didn't make me feel um, whole. Uh, the frustrating thing, I think the most frustrating part was body image and dance and being short and chunky. And even though I was the shortest person, I was still the chunkiest person. So a lot of teachers over the years wanted to put me, didn't want to kick me out of the show, but wanted to you know figure out ways to put me where the light don't shine. So mm-hmm. um, that was always hard um, Yeah, sure. because I was visually impaired. I had, I had to learn the steps fast because I couldn't watch. So they'd put me in the front so other people could follow and they could, they could watch the the whole thing. But then when it came to blocking, they put me in back. <laughs> so it was uh, very devastating. Mm. Mm. So did you, did you go to mainstream school and all yeah. that? Yeah. 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 CIIS was an interesting can of beans where I did my MFA. Um, it was the first time, I think because of technology as well as, their teaching style. It was the first time that I didn't need like testing support or note-taking support or anything like that. And I was just an average person in class. Um, It was pretty extraordinary. And I had amazing um, 
writing instructors like Carolyn Cook and my um, MFA um, coordinator instructor, um, Cindy Shearer, who really got me hooked on text as art. And yeah, never did they, you know, they would ask me about or challenge my sensibilities because I was trying to basically say, screw social justice and blindness and all that. I just want to be an artist and do my art. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, and I had to learn there that, um, you know, like I said earlier, it's just kind of inherently part of what I do and who I am. Um, yeah. So I felt very held uh, through that, that program. So uh, can you talk about how technology is tied? You know, you obviously have a phone, you have, you know, uh, how, how does, you know, what apps do you use or how, how do you use technology in all the work you do? Ooh, that's a fun question. Um, part of my, <laughs> I totally forgot about this. Um, it was not very accessible. I ended up having to use it on my video magnifier as well as just kind of um, trust. Um, I One of my art pieces for my thesis project, which is crazy enough, still surviving at the library in San Francisco, is, was, um, is 100 squares that are kind of positive words that with the letters blown up and twisted and overlapping and stuff like that in a way. So they kind of become, you know, the shapes kind of become their own little abstract art pieces. And it was kind of a challenge for people to have to figure out a word, um, you know, kind of like I have to figure out a word um, by the shapes of things. And so there's a hundred squares and I did them using an iPad app, part using voiceover, part using Zoom, part putting it under my video magnifier because I was tired of both of those. Um, I've recently been playing with some digital art just on my big PC, um, Mm -hmm. and, um, kind of digital finger painting, so to speak. I have a touch screen, um, and it's, it's nice because it's not messy and I don't get paint on my nose. So, (laughs) Or your or your dog's nose, for that matter. Oh yeah, that's true. This is a good point. I did some. I did a bit of painting for you know in prep for the um, Palo Alto Art Center project, and my dog did end up with some uh, glitter and paint and stuff on her. Um, but her name's Gleam, and she suits it. So. Oh, Gleam! <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yes. What a great name for a, a dog. So Maya, I'm curious about that art you described in the San Francisco Library. It was a bunch of squares. Were there actually words and were they sort of the way you saw them? I, how, how I, I'm sort of curious if you can say more about how, how you sort of conceptualize that art piece. Yeah. Um, for instance, I'll give you, you know, kind of an example. Audio describe it or something. I will audio yeah. describe <laughs> like the word love was one of them is simple four letters. So, right. um, we know, it starts out with a giant Oh, blown up so big that it just creates a circle inside the square. And, you know, then there's an L layered on top of it. So it budges up against the left side and is semi-transparent. So you get a little bit of the half circle from the the O uh, showing through it. And then you have an E inside of the O, but you can't see the whole thing. You just kind of um, can tell it's a giant capital E because there's two little rectangles poking out from the right side of the O. And then you have a V kind of in the corner, um, partly off screen, kind of making a little triangle cut out. So um, it really turns out to be abstract art created by the constraints that the shapes of each of the letters offers. There's one piece, I think it's wow. intuitive. 
That's very cool. Yes. It's great description too, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. I actually get it. Cool. I, I, Yay. Yay. Me too. <laughs> so, I'm so picturing here, this here, in my head while you're doing yeah, that. Yeah, I am too. Oh, actually. that would be. So, so here, here's my question. You, so if you're your average, like, quote unquote, average art lover, if you will, could they see the word love? I mean, how easy is it to see that? that With regular vision, like, you know, like if you were just a passerby. Love is pretty easy. I think that one, it's four letters <laughs> and they're pretty distinctive. There's some that are really hard. Like there's this one intuitive that I was going to tell you about that kind of looks like this weird landscape with the U is upside down and it almost looks like an arched doorway and the two eyes are like kind of small and inside the doorway. And it looks like two little people going through an archway sort of with these other letters kind of um, shaping landscape around it and a little bit over the top. And that one, I could never tell it was intuitive unless I knew it. One thing that I did do is I did create a book of all the squares with the word that's in each square. So ah, um, okay. people could go okay. find the book. and. Oh, so it. right. So if they didn't know, like, what is that? Let me check it out. <laughs> yeah. Is there a website where maybe we could go and show this? Oh, unfortunately, I my website is has gone from bad to worse. Um, I'm it's currently empty right now, and I'm in the process of trying to um, revamp it. <laughs> so, um, all right. I think it's the squares are still. I have to go check, but um, over the last couple of years, they had for the library for the blind kind of the header. You know, at the top of the screen, they had a picture of the squares leading into the main part of the library, which was kind of cool. Mm. Uh, but as a practical matter, I mean, if you could get your site up of some of your stuff on there, we have wonderful selling tools. Yes. I mean, yeah. yes, of course, but, but, but I know it's an enormous amount of work. So, you know, yes, it is. <laughs> yes. So I, so is it, is it digital art? Is it physical art? Oh, like, the, the squares. Yeah. They were digitally made. And then, photocopied a la Kinko's and then um, <laughs> attached with a spray adhesive to foam core squares. Oh, and then okay. their installer at the library spent, I don't know how long doing like precise measurements to do this like 10 by 10 square grid. Uh-huh. That's like really mine. Mine would have been like, I'll like wonky all over the place. But this is very precise. It looks really beautiful the way he did it. Oh, it's, so what I'm thinking is there's got to be a digital snapshot of that somewhere if yes. they have it on their website. So, yeah, that's on their their header. Um, you can see really part cool. of the squares. So what is a typical day for you now? How do you spend your time? What are you doing uh, to make money these days? What you know, what's what's your what's your professional life look like? Mm. Fun question. Um, I've been kind of putting it out there to the universe that I need more work. So um, I've been very fortunate that I think because I haven't been going to conferences and stuff like that, I've been able to live comfortably on just my teaching for the most part, um, teaching with City College. I haven't gone back to massage. I miss it. I'm kind of starting slowly to pick up a private client now and again. And but I don't really feel safe going back to do body work and getting that close and breathing like the same air as people two feet away. So I had been doing a little bit of accessibility 
kind of exploration inclusivity design for um, with CIS um, arts at CIS. And uh, I think later this year, I'll be able to do a little bit of work with audio descriptions with the Asian Art Museum because they have a um, a show coming up that's um, celebrating uh, dance um, in Asian culture. So that's going to be exciting. Oh, yeah. I've been doing a little bit of, you know, I love writing as well. And I love breaking things. So I've been having fun working when I can get on there fast enough with um, Fable, just doing kind of uh, access testing for um, their customers' websites, web pages, and whatnot processes. And so it's been fun. Um, Even that feels like a creative process to write something that's engaging and fun to read um, that also helps them understand um, the way I see the world, <laughs> you know, yeah. one, one 25th of my screen at a time. <laughs> um, what, what do you teach? Um, I teach accessible theater and art and movement for adults anywhere from uh, 18 to 88 <laughs> you know, um, for city college. And a lot of them have, you know, developmental intellectual disabilities and, attend programs, uh, you know, senior programs or day programs like the ARC and whatnot. Oh, I see. We bring classes to them. Oh, okay. Only it's been Zoom lately. (laughs) Is there any place on the web or would it be possible for you to put up a piece of work and have it explained in alt text? Yes. I am um, on Facebook and I often put up my work on Facebook with alt text so I can be yes, found. I found there. And okay. Annie can attest to that. Yes, I can. That's how, that's how I, I, I was like, well, I have to get her on because she's doing really cool stuff. Yes. Okay. This is a personal question. If you care to answer it, what are your personal meditative, spiritual disciplines? if any, and would you care to share them? Beautiful question. I kind of consider myself a seeker and mm-hmm. perpetual student um, of spirit. I dealt with some kind of religion-based uh, trauma as a, a, a kid and a young adult. A uh-huh. lot actually related to body image and blindness, dealing with people um, assuming that, you know, my way of being is a result of sin and that I need to be fixed. I need to believe better and all this stuff. So, um, yes, Yes. all too many. Oh yeah. Oh yes. (laughs) Do you, do you follow the writings of any particular uh, people or, or school of thought? Hmm. I'm just going to say the school of curiosity. I, um, Okay. Uh, part of the um, labyrinth community at, at Grace Cathedral, which is an Episcopal church. Um, okay. I hang out with my mom's um, Buddhist, Zen Buddhist Sangha sometimes. Um, oh, cool. I've done a couple art classes okay. and hung out with somebody's synagogue. Uh, so, uh, oh, that's good. That's cool. Oh, I you're a spiritual like spirit, mutt. Yeah, yeah. I'm a spiritual <laughs> mutt, beautifully put. Um, uh, so, so, <laughs> so am I. That's why I asked. I feel so, like um, art making is a very um, meditative practice. Um, it's very affirmative. And um, I, I love pilgrimage. So I feel like, you know, taking 
Um, uh-huh. Even just taking a trip, um, there's something to learn from it. Walking the labyrinth is a pilgrimage. Um, drawing something, you know, there's always something to to learn and understand about self and community and and spirit just from um, from being. Hey, okay. Jason. Do you have anything you want to ask? You've been quiet in the background. Have you anything? I've been quiet, and and this is I I feel kind of silly because this is not really a question, but I was just going to say that my first exposure to a labyrinth was a tactile one on a ceramic mug, and I call it the meditation mug because that it was meant it was meant to uh, muse and meditate while you're enjoying your hot beverage of choice. I want one of those. Where'd you get it? (laughs) (laughs) I think we need to edit that in there. Yeah, I didn't know I didn't have the recording yet. So yeah, Yeah, because as you know, it's just an example of where labyrinths can show up. I know, and, and I've awesome. never really thought of one or heard one before, or heard yeah. of one before. So this was my first exposure, and then of course I, I knew that you know once I I saw it, I'm like, oh, you know, I bet there are larger representations of these that people can walk and or you know follow in some way. But how cool that I got to actually talk to someone you who has walked the labyrinth or a labyrinth before. Um, uh, and this one, uh, somebody asked where, and it's uncommongoods.com is where I found it. Oh, I love okay. that place. Yeah, <laughs> me <for> too. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to find right? it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's very you. cool. So my, to wrap up our conversation, my last question is for me. Yeah. What advice would you give to folks walking their labyrinth to, to, to get better at what they do or to grow? Oh. Want to see if I could under, make sure I understand the question about you want to ask people about people who are walking the labyrinth? I'm talking metaphorically rather than literally. So okay. through the labyrinth of life, if you will. Mm. Um, what advice would you give people to to uh, help them grow or to get better or however you want to frame that? Mm. Stay curious. Remember to play. If you're curious and playful, then you will um, inherently know that you are both beautiful and perfect as you are. And you're also a very tiny piece of something very big and um, can always learn and grow. And both are good. That's wonderful. Well said. Art Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Media. It airs every Saturday beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern on ACB Media One. To listen and for a full schedule, go to acbmedia.org slash one. Art Parlor is also available as a podcast. Just search for Art Parlor in your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at friendsinart.org. And please feel free to check out our website, www.friendsinart.org. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month.